0: Filmmaker Mike Nichols, who died in 2014, first became famous in the late 1950s, performing as part of an improvisational comedy duo with writer-director Elaine May. What began with an improvised skit with Chicago's Compass Players expanded to a radio show and ended as a Broadway hit and Grammy-winning album. Nichols the comedian, Nichols the director of movies and television, Nichols the director of plays, Nichols the producer and writer, whose work earned him four Emmys, a Grammy, an Oscar, and nine Tonys, was also an urbane man about town, whose wit and humanity preceded him in reputation. From his first film, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, which was nominated for 13 Oscars and winning five, to The Graduate, Catch-22, Carnal Knowledge, Silkwood, Wit, Angels in America, and Charlie Wilson's War, he attracted the admiration and loyalty of the best actors and artists in a television, film, and theater. I'm your host, Isabel Siderni, and in this episode of Frame by Frame, you'll meet the collaborators of Mike Nichols, including music editors Susanna Parich and Nancy Allen, ADR supervisor Deborah Wallach, re-recording mixer Lee Dichter, sound supervisor Ron Bokar, post-production manager Anne Gray, and producer and post-production supervisor Paul Levin. Frame by Frame is presented by Post-New York Alliance because it's how you finish that counts. You can share this conversation through our website, bit.do slash frame by frame, or via Twitter at postny. You can write us at frame by frame at york.org. This session was recorded at Bang Music and Audio Post in New York City. Here, his collaborators remember much of what made Mike Nichols an undeniable artist and an indelible New Yorker.
1: You know, the, the way he worked with actors, I think, goes to his theater roots, which go back to Broadway. Sure, with Elaine, Elaine May, they did, uh, they did a Broadway show. Uh, of uh, their
2: radio, right? right? Of their radio, that's what they brought to Broadway, brought right? to Broadway, is that, and
3: yeah. then Arthur Penn was the producer-director. Right, I, think he, I remember. B- he brought the whole thing together and put them on. I think they, they played for, like, months and months and months, maybe a whole year or something.
1: And
4: right? the theater, yeah. I think, really.
3: The theater was movie. the big yeah. link, yeah. yeah.
1: The theater and, and, and the history, if you think about Mike's history, too. I mean, you and know, with radio was, yeah, and everything, yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, it, it it's all here.
4: It was his home. It was That's his a, yeah. home. It literally,
1: yeah. I mean, we all, I, I, I think we all felt we were New Yorkers working on New York projects. I mean, he spent time in L.A., but
5: that was he way did, before. but he didn't
1: spend like like
5: no major time in you know, like maybe a couple of years out no. there. I, having come from L.A., where I had started my career and had been based there for a long period of time, I just felt, and I still feel that. The New York film community, even though it's gotten bigger lately, is more intimate, more close-knit, more collaborative than what I think happens in Los Angeles. And I'm not saying it doesn't happen in Los Angeles. It's just the way it's spread out. It's just the way that people work. It's just the history of the film industry in Los Angeles versus the film industry, here, which started originally here in New York and then eventually moved out there. Yeah.
3: Also, the type of films that we make here.
5: Right.
3: Yeah. You know, this is more narrative films about relationships.
4: One of the differences, I think, in the community aspect is we work, but we could also then go out yeah. right after and hang we out would, for a while or just stay. We're yeah. in LA, you have to drive two hours. We
1: would to walk there. to his mm-hmm. office as a group and have conversations. Mm-hmm. We'd go out to lunch and have conversations, see the tie all the time. <laughs> you know? Or um, we'd talk about a play.
4: Yeah,
1: mm-hmm. or a book, yeah, yeah. a book or a play. literary. Yeah. That's He's the very, other Very, side. Cultural, very so, heavily yeah. literary in there.
6: Yeah. He, he was just also his wit was blinding. It was yeah. so fast.
1: No, he was unique. There's, yeah. You don't, He's you, 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 from you from didn't want
4: to be yeah, on know, okay. the bad side. Of no, Mike. And Mike because that wit could be. Yeah.
5: And yeah, Mike you know, didn't yell. He just I, was bitingly sarcastic. Yeah, he I
4: luckily never was on the bad side. No, the wit, the wit moved both directions. So. Yeah. Well, I think it was about just you know people bringing the a game mm-hmm. to the to the table. Yeah. you know he he set the bar really high and you met it so that yeah.
5: once he once he understood what he was getting from you and what you were contributing to his projects, he wanted to know more about you and yeah. and be a part of his life. And
7: there was a loyalty with him yeah. of your crew, and you take care of your crew. And I take care of you. It was a mutual taking care of.
5: Yeah, uh, definitely. That's the way he was. We also
4: recognized talent,
7: yeah.
5: you know. He, he did. He, oh, yeah. I mean, because he had worked with Mel Straple a number of times. He had worked with
4: Emma, Emma, Emma on primary yeah. colors. And on uh, no, and wit. No, wit.
1: And wit.
5: And wit. The primary colors, colors too. Was she was the. That. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So yeah. yeah. right. he had developed relationships with, with everybody.
7: Well, there was a respect so. and a trust yeah. with Mike. <laughs> I didn't come aboard until What Planet Are You From, when Paul hired me.
0: That's post-production manager Ann Gray, whose credits include work with directors Nora Ephron, Wes Anderson, Bennett Miller, and Dee Reese. She began working with Mike Nichols on What Planet Are You From?
7: The bonus points of that film was that we were in Mike's office. Like, literally in Mike's office. So... We were treated like royalty in that office. My birthday came. I had crystal for my birthday. <laughs> there you
4: go. Cupcakes, I mean.
5: And that really was it because for that movie and the movie right before I did with Mike, and we all did with my Primary Colors, they put me in the office right next to Mike. So I was right next to him. I got to talk to him every day. I got to hear his pearls of wisdom, and he has many of them, and take his advice. And, you know, he was a mentor and a and a friend as well as, you know, uh, an employer.
7: And we were at sound one for a really long time and the phones were so old. They didn't have caller ID on them. So you really, it was back in the day, it was like 2012. So you pick up the phone and not know. And I'm like post-production and it was Mike. He's like, I'm looking for Paul Levin. I'm like, may I ask who's calling? He's like, it's Mike Nichols. I'm like, oh, up-and-coming filmmaker, right? He's mm-hmm. like, absolutely. Like, <laughs> I'm
5: like, it's for
7: you, Paul. <laughs> they had
5: never had a person in my position work with them. At first, they thought I was a spy for the studio. So I explained <laughs> to them that I was not. That's not what I did. I had been working as a post-supervisor at that point for about, five or six years, and I had come as a freelancer and worked with the filmmakers. I was there for them, but at the same time to walk the line between the studio and them and help them get what they need without the studio getting in the way.
0: That's post-production supervisor Paul Levin, whose credits include work with Spike Lee, Bennett Miller, Martin Scorsese, Wes Anderson, Dee Reese, and Nora Ephron. He first began working with Mike Nichols on the film Wolf. And
5: I got to know the editorial crew, Sam Osteen and Chris Cole, who was the assistant editor. And then I had connected with Mike and with Nora Ephron and with Sound One and Bill Nisselson and Lee and Ron and haven't looked back, you know, it's really kind of cool.
0: It's been
4: great. What I experienced, which is, I guess, a little different than when I got to see Mike with actors...
0: ADR supervisor Deborah Wallach, whose credits include work with directors Jonathan Demme, Milos Forman, Spike Lee, Alan Pakula, Martin Scorsese, and Nora Efron, first collaborated with Mike Nichols on The Birdcage.
4: And I learned everything I know, and I still do ADR and, and directing actors and how to deal and be in a room. I learned from him, and it was an extraordinary experience. But on The Birdcage, everyone had had so much fun on set. And you come into a studio and you relive all the moments. So we were just crying. with Jesus. And I was much quieter then and a bit shy about how to, you know, I was just always sort of in a little bit of a corner, did my work. But I felt completely liberated in the studio with Mike. So I was able to suggest things and things would get into the film that we, because it was a very open... You, you, and he was someone who loved actors. He loved actors. He loved being in there. Mike,
3: uh, st- Mike started as an actor.
4: Yeah, well, that's what that's it what is. And that's understood. what you Act- felt loved in the room. him. Because yeah.
3: Yeah. He taught actors. He did everything. He was, acting, everything. You know, yeah, he was yeah. an actor's actor. I mean.
4: And he didn't impose necessarily anything particular on them. But when it wasn't working, he really just. And you could play, and, you know, and, then, and especially if you made him laugh. There was nothing like that. It's. Um, You know, it's one of those things you have to experience and be in there to really appreciate. And I take it with me in the studio all the time, everything.
0: As with Deborah, Lee Dichter found an instant camaraderie with Mike Nichols when he began working with Mike on Biloxi Blues. Lee Dichter has worked with some of the world's most influential directors, including Martin Scorsese, Ken Burns, Jonathan Demme, Robert Altman, the Cohen brothers, the Mazel's brothers, Arthur Penn, Francis Ford Coppola, and Sidney Lumet.
3: I started uh, with with Mike uh, working on Biloxi Blues, and and uh, I think Biloxi Blues was because it was a play, it was on Broadway. It was it was a heyday of uh, comedy on Broadway. So at that uh, when I worked with him on the earlier pictures, a lot of these plays were turned into films. One of the reasons why the movie came to me, because I was known to do a wonderful work with dialogue. You know, a lot of the, Michael's Mike's films are dialogue, but this one was specifically, was every word was like polished. And that just began the, the relationship with Mike, and I, I did most of his pictures after that.
0: Music editor Susanna Parich has worked with directors Martin Scorsese, Arthur Penn, Roman Polanski, Nora Ephron, Jonathan Demme, Peter Jackson, and a growing list of New York independent filmmakers. She first worked with Mike Nichols on Postcards from the Edge.
2: I came to that film via the composer, the first composer, uh, Howard Shore, who I worked with for a long time and who really helped my career a lot, and we were a team for a long number of years, and this was a film that he was hired on. With music, he was very particular, because he liked music very much, and he was probably one of the directors that I met who was most knowledgeable about music, but most cautious about Music in films. He loved music as music. He loved films as films. But he didn't love music in films. <laughs> so I think he was uh, It was a very, very difficult task, uh, for a composer to uh, to 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 work on a film of his. But then, if you look at you know Catch 22, uh, there is no music in it. Carnal Knowledge, there is no music basically. So
0: uh, Virginia Wolf was basically straight. Well,
2: that was Alex North. That was a that was a very kind of a very sparse you know, jazz that was appearing then and being very popular at that time. And that was his first film also. So I think, you know, to have a film without any score probably was not an option at that time, but it was very sparse and very distinct. And in music, every film was different. And there he always tried to imagine a different personal. Although Carly Simon was somebody who he would uh, go to more than once, let's say. Mike was always very adventurous. He, he liked, um, he worked with the same people at times. Like The editor was all the same for, for a long time, actually. Sam Osteen, who then actually took me to the next Mike Nichols film and the next Mike Nichols film. And that's how I met Mike.
1: Yeah, I had worked with Sam Osteen on uh, an Alan Pakula film. So Sam Osteen gets me to get on Wolf, but he wants me to meet Mike first. And their cutting room is next to Mike's office.
0: Supervising sound editor Ron Bocart is a partner at the New York-based sound editing studio C5 and has worked with directors such as Martin Scorsese, Jonathan Demme, Alan Pakula, the Coen brothers, Spike Lee, and Nora Ephron.
1: They were well into Wolf by the time I got a call. They were in post-production. They'd already started sound on it. And I, I got called in for some design work and to try to make the wolf sounds work. <laughs> so I, I go up into the office, I meet everybody in the office. Mike's in the back room, he's on a phone call, and I'm just standing outside the office, and there are these metal discs on a on a desk, on a table right outside, and I pick one up and start spinning it. And, and what is Eileen, I think, yeah. at the time. Yeah. Because I says, hey, leave Mike's Tonys alone. (laughs) I had no idea. (laughs) Because I wasn't with Mike until Wolf, not really knowing what he wanted or whatever. The beautiful thing about Mike is he let you do what you felt was needed and, you know, just kind of took whatever you gave him um, and would run with it, which was really pretty great.
0: Here the group discusses how Mike's openness to experimentation supported the processes within post-production for the film Primary Colors.
1: So Primary Colors was a nice open canvas of reality to put in, you know, with all the rooms, all the locations, the campaign, you know, you name it. You know, we, we were allowed to do a lot. We did a lot with group, you know, we had rallies to deal with. We had a lot of things. We had a lot of quiet to deal with which, you know, is like a hallmark of Mike's movies. He loves dynamics, and we had a lot of dynamics in that film. A lot of loud, a lot of quiet, a lot of, you know. And we could just have fun and structure it that way. It was well-recorded, as I remember. Um, dialogue tracks weren't that terrible. We had a lot of good help from the actors that projected most of the time.
4: But he did change some arcs of performance. He did. We, we did. we definitely did a bunch of he ADR. He, he a lot of groups
1: some changing things um
4: what was important to him was the relationships and the character relationships and always more than just the plot story it's Mm -hmm. what what was really going on and
3: but in the mixing studio Ron would, would bring to the stage many different sounds to make the shots work and we would manipulate them and make them work and and Mike was always open to experiment different balances and different this and some sounds he didn't like he would hold them back or take them out but basically he was it was a fluid situation and and how you were being you know how was helping the scene out as as opposed to distracting you or something so it was a process and he was there and you know as we we'd make a few passes without him and then he'd come in change a few things and then, you know, he said, that sounds great. Let's go on.
1: Well, we've all seen every one of his films from the beginning when we would start working on them to the end. They would evolve. They would all evolve. Sometimes they'd evolve pretty drastically. They'd have new endings. <laughs> yeah, primary college. Yeah, yeah. Charlie Wilson. Be, yeah. I mean, you. Back and yeah. we primary, can do a whole list of them. They went
3: back and had a reshoot, if yeah. I remember. Yeah. The Came last from, scene but, wasn't yeah. working. The dance scene at the very end, I
5: remember. Right. And so we we went back to. It we was originally to, supposed to be much
1: more ambiguous. Yeah. And you know, you mark a test, and you have other input, and things change.
4: I do remember at the mix though, when the whole Monica Lewinsky came out.
1: Oh, exactly. During, I mean, that was yeah. the joke yeah. of the thing. <laughs> We're working mix, on like it. it and like, Monica oh, Lewinsky comes the off. <laughs>
4: At so timing. we made the
1: decision during the film that we were working on a movie that was going to be much more important like 20, 30 years from yeah. now. I mean, um, you people sort of just knew it back. at that
4: moment when yeah. it all came out. I mean well, it's a oh. brilliant
1: I, – I, I rewatched it maybe two months ago. Yeah. And um, it's scary how dead on it is <laughs> politically.
4: In fact, I remember saying to Mike there was one line in the film that always struck me. And he said that's the one line that Elaine May wrote <laughs> – <laughs> that is different from the book. And it was just how the people that are cheated on always suffer more than those who cheat. And it turned out it was Elaine's line.
5: And she also wrote the script for The Birdcage as well, mm-hmm. as the screenwriter. So.
2: And Rai Cooter was the composer on it. And I remember that he came to New York to uh, do a session One session or maybe a couple of sessions. I can't remember. So, uh, exactly. So, uh, but he didn't, he was, no, he was in New York anyway because the Buena Vista Social Club Mm -hmm. was at Carnegie Hall and he was promoting them. And so we thought, let's use this time. We had already met him. He was already on the film to get him into a studio and to do something. And Primary Colors didn't really need a score. Per se, and he wanted an Americana voice, and I think that's probably how Reichweder came into into the. I don't know the whole, you know, the 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 exact uh, reason. It's something that I had explained to myself, and. um so we rented a studio, and uh, and now he didn't have his guitar with him. Right, Kuda didn't, and but we had a little agenda of how many cues we should do that day, and and so we called. Uh, we rented a guitar at this famous guitar place that doesn't exist anymore in Staten Island. mandolin brothers Brothers. and so a, a, a guitar comes and uh and rye takes the guitar he sits there and i see him i'm in the booth and he's in the in the studio in the recording studio with his guitar and nothing comes out nothing and so you're waiting there there's silence and he looks back and he says this guitar has not been loved Oh. So, so we had to return the guitar. In the meantime, Paul is calling me. Do you do you get? Did you record? How many takes have you recorded? Because Mike is coming. I said, Well, we have none. And he said, Well, we need a new guitar. So now there's, you know, a new guitar. And that's, this is Staten Island. You know, traffic is. There is no Uber or things like that. And so this takes a couple hours. So now is the afternoon, and a few guitars come, and he's looking at the. Guitar. In the meantime, Mike calls me and said, so how is it going? Right. I said, well, I had to say, there's we, we're we almost there. He said, what do you mean you're almost there? What has been happening? And I had to say to him, the guitar was not locked. <laughs> 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 but he understood true, that. Yes. <laughs> and so they extended, uh, you know, we got overtime and all that stuff I needed but it was the most wonderful session because yeah. it was so heartfelt and that's what Mike understood. He understood,
6: yeah. It was beautiful. I sailed in on Susanna's coattails. I was uh, her assistant and I was, I had the ultimate catbird seat fly on the wall because I wasn't really responsible for very much other than making sure that Susanna had what she needed and. One of our first, like moments, big moments on Primary Colors was when Rye Cooter was sitting in our in our (laughs) cutting room, (laughs) and then Rye was flus well, not flustered, but he was wondering what to do because I guess he had to stay in town for an award. I guess that was Buena Vista Social Club's. And he needed to get a suit. So then there was a long conversation between Mike and Rye about where to buy the best suits in New York. And listening to Mike talk about how good the men's, ele- the Bergdorf
0: elevators sound going up and down the men's department <laughs> was
6: just priceless.
0: <laughs> That's music editor Nancy Allen, whose credits include work with Darren Aronofsky, Dee Reese, and Barry Levinson. She worked as the associate music editor and assistant to Susanna Parrish, working with Mike Nichols on several films. Here, Paul Levin describes the challenges in post production of managing Angels in America, a multi part televised film.
5: What we did on Angels in America is we did, for us, it was the first digital intermediate we did, and one of the most expensive digital intermediates. And it was done in LA so we had to keep going back and forth. I was going back and forth to LA every week for about six months. Yeah. But it it really was the beginning of DI's before they started doing them theatrical. Mm-hmm. And it was a learning experience for Mike and for everybody. Yeah. So, yeah.
7: Angels was the best project, I think, that I ever worked on, that we ever worked on. Working with Mike, plus working with the whole cast and the crew. And we were overlapping with production, right? They were in yeah. our, they were at Sound One with us. Yeah. So we were just really heavily involved with the whole project from beginning to end. And it was just everything about it was an ultimate pleasure. I never remember being overly stressed.
5: I had a few stressful moments. Yeah, but, but it
7: wasn't like. It, well, because I, it was
4: like doing three features in the it in was. The 10 it weeks was, the it was a was lot of
7: tight. work, but it wasn't of trying to deal with a difficult director stress. It was just normal work. How do we get this done in the time we have to get it done and do it perfectly? It was just a whole different ball. And I feel like an old lady saying it, but I'm like, films were made like they used to be, but it's so true.
3: Yeah, it's much harder. And the important thing was they gave, the they gave us the time.
7: They gave us the time. They
3: gave us the time. Now
1: the schedules are crazy. Crazy.
7: crazy. It's crazy.
1: No, it was it, was, it was a short schedule. The whole thing was a, it was a compromise schedule from the beginning. It wasn't like doing... An eight-hour feature film. It was eight hours of material that had to get done in the time that you might get to do a large feature film. One large feature film that's two hours long. Multiple acts. Yeah, yeah. It was a lot of work. Multiple
5: uh, formats. Yeah, different ways. I mean, at one point they were. They said they wanted, you know, two parts, which is what we did. Also, six acts, which we did as well. And then at one point they were saying we want. Uh, like two hours two hours and two hours but they hopefully thankfully they got rid of that in which it's just six acts at one point that's the format plus two two parts which was perestroika and millennium approaches
1: but it was also treated as two two separate halves i mean you you think about it the first three hours everything is much more based in reality and new york is a a major presence onto its own, but there's a lot of interiors. It's it's almost like a stage play the first three hours. And then the next three hours are completely crazy. So that's how it was structured, and that's how we kind of prepped it and worked on it. And, and, and even did it.
5: from a production standpoint and a post production organizational standpoint, it was treated that way. Because they didn't we didn't get to the idea of cutting it into acts and doing anything else until we finished those Those versions first. We always
1: treated them as as three-hour chunks. As, like, two plays. We
5: were going to do it like the two plays, and then we were going to figure it out after that.
1: Yeah. But it was able to get done in the time that we had because, you know, of Mike. Yeah. (laughs) You know? He didn't put a gun to our head. We had a schedule that we had to try to adhere to with HBO. He got pneumonia, as I recall, when we were finished the first three-hour piece. So he
5: was shooting and he got pneumonia towards the end of right. that. And then, and then we had
1: a period of where we, we had, had time had playback, off. Yeah. If you recall without yeah. Mike there. Yes. And with just HBO. Yes. And you know, we didn't preview. You know, there wasn't any wasted time. <laughs>
5: Those on the things. film, we, well, we had a few screenings, but they, they weren't, weren't like preview, preview. They weren't full
1: bore mixes. No, we didn't or go out like and that.
5: get a recruit an audience and do like we would no. do on a future film. HBO didn't do that.
1: No, but we did have a few. screenings. You know, notes would come in yeah. from HBO, but that would be about it. Yeah, um, and it's full of design. That I mean, from a sound end, that that movie's full of otherworldly things going on all the time. The winds aren't real. There's something else that I made. I mean, everything is everything is layered on all these zillion levels because the film was telling us to do it that way it's not like mike did and the beauty of the situation is we didn't throw anything out by that point i mean we didn't spot anything that <laughs> yeah, we'd have some meetings in his in his office you know how are we going to take care of these wings what do you have in mind and you know we'd have a talk about wind and i'd i'd say you know i'm not hearing feathers i'm i'm hearing wind i'm hearing some kind of and, oh, you know, we're going to have to loop Emma. And I said, yeah, I know we're going to have to loop Emma. I mean, you got fans blowing on her. You're going to have to do something. <laughs>
4: yeah, there was um, a lot of ADR.
1: And that's that's, that's one of the nice. things that, that I always look at when I look at that, that I use in in classes. I say, you watch, watch this scene. And everybody's watching, and I'm saying, it's kind of weird, isn't it? This is when Emma's the angel we've looped her. You know, it's the one thing we didn't get right. We got right, but we didn't get right. You know, when she was performing it, she had to exert. Her whole body is exerting, yeah. in order to project the words with the fans blowing and everything like that. And when we looped her, we looped her very delicately. It was his choice. Yeah. And I agree with you. The voice doesn't fit the body. Yeah. It just—it's kind of.
4: I completely agree. It's
1: beautiful. It's dead sync. But every time I look at it, it looks out of sync. <laughs> it just.
4: He wanted it to be. Clear. I know. Yeah.
1: I know. Now we, we there was a long talk about maybe doing something with the angel's voice period from the beginning, like maybe multi-tracking Emma saying the lines the same you know the same way but differently just and and just put them all on top of each other, I mean, that's cool. and we played with that for like just a brief second and and Mike was like no it's it let's just I want to hear her mm-hmm. let's not make a deal out of it and you know well. That scene did did work out very well because it won us an Emmy. Oh yeah, no. The whole, <laughs> the, whole no, the whole experience. I mean, for me, I, I agree with Anne. It's, it it it's after I did. If I could have retired then, I, you know, I would have, I would have hung my hat and said, that's it. I you know, I don't want to do anything else. It was that kind of an experience. It was there was. Well,
2: it's an unusual project, you know, to get a six hour mm-hmm. play to do and so every day you're coming to work and it was it's so rich the experience that to watch one scene over and over again and get to know that text was Mm -hmm. uh, because the depth of the text is unbelievably
6: It still Uh, resonates
4: there are days I I, I, things resonate
6: look up. Mm. Oh my gosh I remember when um the scene when um Ben Shankman and Justin Kirk, they come together and they're they they and they're dancing. Mm. And I remember Susanna walking in the room. He'd been on the mix stage for a few hours and I was doing something. i The scene had changed a little bit, so I was helping just kind of get ahead of a confirmation. Mm. And you rounded the corner and you look at my face and I had been just sobbing. And you said, what's wrong? I'm yeah. thinking <laughs> something else This is the most beautiful scene. <laughs> You well, know, that, and it, it doesn't matter yeah. how many times you would no, see yeah. it or yeah. um hear it these, you know that would happen to me all the time yeah. on the on the stage.
4: On the yeah. ADR stage, I'd be crying. I yeah. still
7: tear up when Before I listen I, to it. Saying? Yeah. When I listen to it on my from my iPhone or whatever I have it on, I tear up with the music and tear mm, up about it. Yeah.
2: So Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it Just was, so you know. So how? That's what's. Where, mm-hmm. I don't know. An undertaking like that, you know, that that would the the the, the seriousness of that yeah. of the of the text, the meaning, the metaphor, the humor, all of that. Everything. I mean, that all it influenced so... us, and I think that we all became richer. And I'm going to tell you another funny story. <laughs> 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 well, Mike might would like to remember these. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, Thomas Newman was doing the score and he has a music editor, wonderful music editor, who was on the film, Bill Bernstein. So Bill Bernstein comes to New York and we're all sitting in our cutting room in New York. And he had a day, like an afternoon off that he could take afternoon off. And and he said he's going to go take a look around and he has never been to Carnegie Hall. And then he poses the question. How do you get oh, to Carnegie Hall? Oh, no. <laughs> and Mike and I looked at each other. It was like <laughs> one most wonderful morsel. And we spread it out. Practice, practice, practice. <laughs> <laughs> a one time in life a, 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 a occurrence yeah. that somebody would actually ask that it. question. <laughs> he was just so happy. Mike. <laughs>
0: Here, Susanna Parich and Nancy Allen describe the complexities of, of developing the score for *Angels in America* and striking the right balance between the voices of the composer, music editor, re-recording mixer, sound editor, and director.
2: Music—it's very—it's—it's it's very difficult for a director to uh, um, accept to get used to, to find the, the, the language, to find mm-hmm. their, the vision, because up to the moment where the music is written, a director is involved in every single creative decision on a film, from writing to casting to costumes to camera to everything. Everything is to editing, of course. And now a a big element that is going to influence how we perceive a certain scene and the whole message is arriving, but they have absolutely nothing to do with that. That's very difficult. So he wasn't at the recordings, you're
5: saying? No, no. Yeah, he was.
2: Maybe he, but these were demos then coming, maybe he went to the... He went
5: to the recordings because I was there at the recording. Oh, he might have gone to the
2: recordings, but these were demos that were coming. And so this was the first time to hear the melodies, the scope, the choir, you know, all of that. It's very, very hard. Then he did, he fell in love with it. Yeah, he did, totally. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. But the first day was pretty funny because it was like, you know... But,
1: okay, no, but he had never worked with Thomas before. No, he hadn't. You know, and think about all the movies. I mean how much is a consistent composer in his life other than Carly or whatever That's what I mean.
2: Yeah, that's what we talked. So, he always You know, yeah, it was always was something, new, new. something and, new and you know, I mean
1: every time you got involved with Mike, you know, the very first time you got involved with Mike, you know, there was a little bit of testing. Yeah, there had to be. Um with a composer there's not the same kind of time you have with a you know, a sound post-schedule.
2: You know, it's also very difficult in a in a piece like this that long to start to uh, to try to understand where is the, what is the theme and whose is it and how much can you repeat it? You know, it's a huge uh, it evolves. undertaking. Yeah. yeah. So Six it was hours, about yeah. finding the theme, really. And that once that main theme worked in a few of the crucial scenes, and he listened to it again. It was, it's also very, you know, when you listen to something for the first time, it's shocking, Mm -hmm. and then when you listen to it again, you either start understanding why you might like it or why you might not like it, so it always takes a little while, especially in a huge piece like that, Mm -hmm. but music had to follow the story, and the story is the story of the boys.
5: Mm -hmm.
6: You know, I, 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 being an assistant at that point, you know, like Anne, who was supporting Paul, I'm supporting Susanna, I'm sort of standing back and watching all of this. And the thing that I saw might do again and again with the people that he trusted, um, who he knew were digging deep into this material to help him find this. You know, when he had that first, like, wow, that music isn't what I was expecting. You know, he trusted Susanna enough to follow her in, you know, kind of wade into it and listen to it again and let her experiment with it in different places and not become impatient in such a way that the process would shut down and and i saw that happen time and time and time and time and time again on the stage with you know lee's ideas for sort of teasing some sort of nuance out in a dialogue line um with the things that he would do with ron with the sound design he might want the the weight of something an element to be a little bit different and ron would figure out how to do that but in a way that was different than what mike was expecting and because he trusted these guys And because he knew that they were not afraid of him, um, he would follow them. And I learned through that to not be afraid of the first reaction. Because just like whatever it is that you play for somebody when you're trying to help them create something, it's very likely that whatever you do is not going to be what they're expecting you have to allow that their reaction is not going to be one where they just jump up and say, that's it. It's a wrap. Print it. You know, you have to allow, you have to make room for them to come in the process. And these guys were all so adept at that. And um, Mike was also very trusting. But you had to know where you were leading him because he he wouldn't let you lead him astray more than once.
1: He also loved the project. I mean, he loved Angels. And, you know, we all knew that. We all yeah. felt that from the beginning. It just...
2: Deeply. You know, yeah, it
1: was, it, was, it, it was personal to him. Um, probably the, the most personal is, of I all mean, of it. And, you know, to it, put that you know,
2: into film, it's just, my goodness, one in a lifetime.
0: Yeah. Here, the group shares some of the first conversations that were influential to the post-production processes and elements for Charlie Wilson's War.
6: That's when Mike for, um, discovered that I grew up in Las Vegas. We were trying to—he to, he, he did. We were trying to find a song for the opening. He, he was asking Susanna, "What would you be listening to in a hot tub in the '80s in Las <laughs> Vegas?" <laughs> and I quietly rose my hand. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking from experience, what? And <laughs> <laughs> I told him. I said, "I grew up in Las Vegas." He said, "Well, you certainly turned out well, didn't you?" <laughs> <laughs> that would be him. Um,
5: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, that was a tough movie I know he was sick uh, yeah. You know He wasn't feeling well On um, part of that movie
6: It was um, a hard shoot too wasn't It It was a very
5: hard shoot They yeah. went to Morocco For the first I think two or three weeks He was then... stuck On
1: the top of the mountain With pneumonia And <laughs> yeah. a snowstorm yeah. yeah
5: And then they went out to LA To shoot the rest of it Yeah Most of it Yeah
1: But he let me do something <laughs> So the, the original ending On Charlie Wilson The original version That we I think we all saw In the very beginning Um, you know, kind of linked 9-11 to everything that went on. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, it was gorgeous. It broke your heart in every way. And various forms of politics attacked that kind of an approach. We mutated it. It became a different kind of ending. But I still wanted to get 9-11 in there somehow. (laughs) And there's this wonderful conversation out on a balcony with Philip Seymour saying, you know, you just can't go in and leave. You've got to stay. There's going to be something happening here and full of wonderful pauses. And in one, there's two jets flying by.
2: None I remember. Yeah. That was yeah. wonderful. And
1: I pointed it out it to Mike and, and he said, oh, I've heard them. <laughs> yeah.
4: Well, that's the thing. He heard
5: everything.
1: Yeah. yeah. Charlie, Charlie was probably one of the most, yeah, it was, it was the one that Mike wanted not to do a movie again from. Yeah. At the end of that. And it wasn't because of us and it wasn't because of the way the movie turned out it became the committee right and i think it was the first time mike was ever hit with a committee on that kind of a level
5: yeah that definitely was the first time that i can remember on the movies that i've i worked with mike from wolf on that there was a committee i mean he had his trusted producer that i think started with him yeah um that ended up running sony for a while but he didn't have committees. No. You know, it was him and a few trusted persons. It
1: was conversations. Yeah. Yeah, he'd get notes from studios. Yeah. And, you know, I, I always see them in a wastebasket after a <laughs> <Right>. while. <laughs> yeah, like he didn't have to take you know, it. He didn't have to, he didn't them. Have to follow him, He didn't have to do them. this one
5: had a committee, which uh, probably left a bad taste in his mouth.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, again, Mike was recovering from another bout of pneumonia during that whole time period. So... You know, he, he wasn't the same strong Mike that we had been with on a lot of the others. It wasn't weak. I mean, don't get that impression here. He, he just wasn't as as forceful, maybe on top of it. And I think he didn't, he had a very distaste to the the politics of it.
4: I think he became impatient.
1: Yeah. It, it just
5: was so unusual because you were used to Mike being, he was the guy running the show, you know, yeah. and... You didn't get the feeling at Charlie Wilson's war that he
1: was in full control. No, that,
5: you know, except that first writer. cut.
1: <laughs> right, right. <laughs> the first cut we saw. We first were cut, all, which was really oh, good. We loved it. Yeah. yeah, it was just brilliant. Right,
5: and the politics came in of not, you know, aligning it all the way up to nine eleven, which it was beautiful. It was, it was exactly what should have been told, and yeah. it wasn't. So. I mean, right now it ends where he gets recognition outside of the CIA from the uh, covert community. And that happened during the period of time, you know, there, whereas the scene that was in there was in the future and, to you know, it was nine eleven, which was a much better yeah. way of ending the movie than
1: what But, it, you, you know, I now. talked to him about it all. And as far as he was concerned, the, you know, he still got what he wanted to get. I mean he he felt good about Charlie Wilson's as, as as a movie. It's not like he felt there was a no, failure in there. No,
5: I didn't say that, but I think no, was but so he, he better was so much the,
1: the No. Oh, I did the, too. Uh, yeah, and but but he was very happy at the end of the day of how it ended up and how it came out. He thought yeah. everybody did a, a great job and Oh yeah. You know, he, he he loved it. Yeah. But um you know, and he got to know Charlie a lot. Yeah. During that.
6: Yeah. Do you guys remember we were on the mix stage for um one of the days in Charlie Wilson's war, and I don't know, something happened with the board. We had a few minutes to kill. And we had just rolled past the scene where Julia Roberts and Tom Hanks, she she wants something, so she takes them upstairs at their big party and that cut to the bathtub. And he's <laughs> soaking in the bathtub and he's like, I don't know how you women do it. Yeah, you're baking a cake. Yeah, you all bouncing around all over the place after. And she has this.
5: didn't
6: say that. After after sex, exactly. And and she she has this. Yeah, she's at the mirror. And she's this is before she starts doing the safety pin thing. (laughs) But she does this thing with her lips. And it's so like she she does that and it's so perfectly timed. And we'd been working on that scene, and we just ran over it. And I just said out loud, sort of without thinking. I said, God, that is such a moment. And Mike looked at me and he said, that's one of my three favorite moments in film. And I said, what are your other two? And he said, do you remember this? And he said, one is the French lieutenant's woman when Meryl Streep accidentally falls and she hits her head. And then he said, and the the next one is um, uh, Garbo in Camille. And he looked at me and he said... I'm not going to tell you which one. (laughs) You have to watch the film and come back and tell me. And my regret to this day is that I never got to tell Mike that I figured out what it is. Mm. And it's the very end when she collapses into the arms of the you know the lover that she never wanted to be with and she exactly and she sort of gives this look on her face like oh god is this what it was all for it was just like and I can just you you just he would love that he just loved all that nuance and you know
7: one of the fun things too about these movies and all of everyone is I always say, I grew up around food, but I learned a lot about food. Mm. Working with Mike Nichols and Mm -hmm. getting us all food and all of us eating together was always a thing. Like the big Shunley mixed stage things Mm. that Paul and I would get for everybody. Like, you always had to have food. Around. Between
4: Mike Mike and 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 Nora.
7: Nora. Mike and Nora have made, Nora Efron have made me who I am today (laughs) about food and always having stuff around for everybody and feeding everybody and giving everybody things that they love because when you have a happy crew, everyone wants to work. And I still do that to this day, which I learned from working. So I'm just thinking about the mixed time with angels and Didn't all we that went castle, on.
2: the Sam White Castle um, hamburgers. Yes. He had yes. oh, no, who oh, donuts. Donuts. a Who could eat more? And the donuts. Donuts. Krispy Kreme. He was so but happy But then there
6: yeah. was, yeah. where Christy did he up up ship from <laughs> San Francisco
4: some kind of cupcake or? Oh, the
0: cupcake Oprah's
4: yeah. favorite
7: cupcakes.
3: Yeah. There was a, cup, a cupcake that he found in California
1: that had not shipped to the studio. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. the one.
4: That
2: was cupcake. I remember the boxes. Yes, They were delicious. The donuts came from
1: Harlem, there was like That's some
2: right, place the up there.
6: Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. We were working a Sunday, and do you remember there was a spread that showed up from Russ and Daughters, that was just and a whole separate delivery of bagels from H and H, still hot, like yeah. right from the oven. I don't know he
2: to how drink. he. Oh no!
1: It. Yeah, there was a day I went up to spot with Mike and and with John Bloom and. Mike comes out from the back with this bottle of wine that's, like, got six inches of dust on it. He's like, <laughs> I just found this. And he's like, 1947 or something. Who knows what it was, but it was an old, old thing. Let's try it. <laughs> it's right. like 10 in the morning. Right, you know. right. Pop no, it. no,
2: that would be him. You know,
1: yeah. we all kind of, like, tasted it. It was close to vinegar, but, you know, it was all right.
7: Well, then I had to order lunch for Mike and Justin Kirk, who was in Angels in America. Right. And I went down, and want, oh, he always wanted Thai food from C to Thai on 50th street which is no longer there and justin kirk and i we loved each other like i loved we got along really well he's like ann i want you to order pad prick for me So you have to say prick <laughs> and mike without a b is like you're only doing ann a favor
4: right?
0: <laughs> <laughs> today's podcast recording was engineered by Bang's senior audio engineer paul vita lynch Frame by Frame is produced by Isabel Siderni and Ben Baker. The music credits for this episode include selections from Simon and Garfunkel's score to The Graduate and Nella Hefty's score to Barefoot in the Park. Stay tuned for upcoming episodes of Frame by Frame with the collaborators of George Roy Hill.